Well, as you are listening or watching along with us, I want to invite you to meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is a little letter in the New Testament towards the very end of your physical Bible. Meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're just going to read a couple of verses. These are words that were written by a guy named Paul to another guy named Timothy. Paul's the older mentor. Timothy is the younger mentee. And this letter is jam-packed with wisdom that Paul is sharing with his protege, Timothy. In fact, Paul, who, wrote, who writes a lot of the New Testament, this is what uh, some people feel are his last written words. In the middle of all that, he says this about Scripture. He says, all Scripture... This is chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, in the midst of our crazy time, in, in the midst of our fear and uncertainty, our questions, the complexity of the moment in which we are living, God. Maybe even in the midst of some really great things that are going on. In all of that, would you uh, help us to be fully present here? Would you remove uh, distractions? Would you hold all of it for us so that we can be in tune with your spirit, that our, our eyes are open, our ears are open to what you want to say to us. God, would you speak to us today? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. We all together say, Amen. Now, we are in week two of a three-week conversation to start the year on the Bible. A sort of uh, why, what, and how of the Bible under this umbrella of the what we talk about when we talk about stuff conversation. So last week we kicked it off. We looked at the practice of reading scripture. Again, practice is another ongoing conversation for us. That was the why, and then today's the what, and next week will be the how. I want to do a quick recap of where we were last week. Again, the why of reading scripture. We read scripture so that our holy imaginations are formed by the story by God's story for the adventure of following Jesus. We read scripture so that our holy imaginations are formed by the story for the adventure of following Jesus. A shorter way of saying it would be this. We read to be formed, not informed. We read to be formed, not informed. Now, information, learning, study, research, all of that is wonderful and good and we encourage it. But underneath all of that, the why we want to be formed by God's story for the adventure of following Jesus so that we can say no to the lesser stories that compete for our trust and our worship and our affections. Now, practically speaking, we, we uh, had a couple of challenges, right? We had the challenge to get a Bible, a physical copy of the Bible. There's, uh, we live in a moment of unprecedented access to the Bible, which is a beautiful thing. And yet there's something about the physicalness, the tangibleness of an actual Bible that's really important. So get a Bible and then get a plan. And there's a, a great reading plan on our app. Remember, I just talked about the app. Um, but that covers, and it just started last week in Genesis 1, but it covers in six months the big story of Scripture, getting us formed by that story, right? But there's a bunch of other great plans as well. So uh, get a Bible, have a plan, be intentional about your reading. And then the big thing was this read in community, find some friends 
that you can meet with to talk about uh, what you are reading. Join a mid-sized community, whatever it is. Be a part of a group where you can get into the scriptures with other people. Our vision, our inspiration for this was the Berean Jews as described in Acts chapter 17. Verses 10 through 12, this community that is described as being of noble character, that received the message with eagerness, and then examined, opened the scriptures daily together to see what was true. This is who we want to be. This is who we want to be, Discovery Family. Noble character, receiving the message with eagerness, examining the scriptures regularly together. Now, today, as we get into the what, I want to talk for a few minutes about five ways that we misuse the Bible. Then we're going to look at four key words, four words that are often used to talk about the Bible, and then we'll end with an invitation. So let's get right into it. Five ways that we misuse the Bible. First one is this. When we were on a break here a couple weeks ago for Christmas, my kids were at a grandparent's house. They found a magic eight ball. You guys remember the magic eight ball was this thing where you'd ask a yes or no question, you'd shake it up, turn it over, and you'd get one of 20 different answers. I think there was 10 affirmatives, five maybes, and five no's, right? So you'd say something like, man, are the 49ers going to beat the Cowboys? Shake it up, flip it over, outlook is good. Yes, 49ers going to beat the Cowboys. Now, this is how a lot of us approach the Bible, right? With these questions. Should I take this job? Should I ask this person out? Is it time to move to a new city? Shake it up, flip it open, hope we get some kind of affirmative answer. So there's the Bible as Magic 8-Ball. There's also the Bible as a Four Dummies book. Do you guys remember these? And speaking of cultural artifacts, uh, there was this period of time where they were quite popular, right? The Four Dummies would be all kinds of different things, right? Like learning Spanish for dummies, traveling in Europe for dummies, uh, how to fix your car for dummies, all those sorts of books. Sometimes we use the Bible this way, almost as a life for dummies book, not as God's personal revelation of himself to us, but as a cheat code or a hack for a better life. Third, there's what I like to call the lifted truck approach to scripture. I went to high school in the Salinas Valley with some uh, wealthy ag families that went to the, the school that I went to, and it seemed like every month there was a newer, bigger, more lifted truck showing up in the parking lot. I was super intimidating because I drove a 1983 Honda Civic and I was like afraid of getting squished by these gigantic trucks. But in the same way, we have this approach to scripture of like bigger is better, right? The bigger the Bible, the more footnotes I have in there, the more study notes I have, obviously the more spiritual I am. Fourth, there's the Bible as photo opportunity. Now I'm I'm a slow adopter of new technologies, especially when it comes to phones. Uh, I was a flip phone guy for a long time, which means I've only been on Instagram for a couple of years. But when I joined, I, I quickly found out that there's a, 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 like all these different subgenres of, of photos. And one of them in like the Christian world it is, are these like curated pictures of what Christians like to call quiet times. Quiet time is where you... Spend 20, 30, 40 minutes by yourself reading your Bible. Maybe you journal a little bit, whatever. But there's these pictures of like, it's like a beautiful scene or there's like a reclaimed wood desk or something like that. And there's a Bible open and a cup of coffee and, and maybe some pens or whatever. And it will say like, you know, my quiet time. And it's this like very picturesque, again, look at how spiritual I am sort of thing. 
By the way, if this is you, I'm not trying to put you on blast or attack anybody or anything like that today. But those are some of the silly ones. Then the fifth one's a little bit more serious. Scripture as a weapon. This one is kind of tricky because the Bible does refer to itself as a sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6.17. Also, uh, that, that imagery is repeated in Hebrews chapter 4. I see a lot of people get sucked into this. Studying the Bible in this systematic way, primarily to call out other people, almost always Christians, other Christians, for their lack of understanding, their their kind of weak knowledge of the Bible or their doctrine or whatever. The Bible as a sword. Now the context, I want to dig into this just a little bit for a moment. The context of the sword metaphor is Paul's recognition that we are in a battle. This is the same Paul that we just talked about a minute ago who writes the letter to Timothy. He recognizes that we are in a a battle. Back to that Ephesians passage, chapter 6, verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, pay attention now, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's not talking about using the Bible to attack people. And in fact, we can read this very similarly to what we talked about last Sunday, right? This is about the competing stories. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the story of the flesh, against the story of the world, against the story of the devil. Now, all of these ways in which we can misuse Scripture make me think about one of my favorite Latin phrases. And yes, I have favorite Latin phrases, big nerd here. But the phrase is this, esse quam videre. Esse quam videre, to be rather than to appear. To be rather than to seem, which is a statement about authenticity, right? Our tendency is to replace the real thing with an image, an appearance. In our cultural moment, we are very good at seeming or appearing and not so good at being. Are you with me? A lot of our approaches to the Bible have way more to do with appearing spiritual than actually being formed by God's story for the adventure of following Jesus. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now these are the very pointed words of Jesus himself. They are directed at the religious leaders of his day, but they are a sober warning for us today in the 21st century as well. We don't want to seem. We want to be. We don't just want appearances. We want real transformation into loving people. We don't just want pretty Instagram photos. We want to authentically encounter the living God, which means we will need to do away with some of these unhelpful approaches to Scripture. Now, there's one other issue at play in some of these unhelpful approaches, and it's this. What they tend to do is reduce the Bible, reduce Scripture 
to a very simple thing, when in fact the Bible is this incredibly wonderful, beautiful, complex thing. These unhelpful approaches do not take into account the reality that this is an ancient book, actually a library of 66 different books that were written over the course of 1,500 years in three languages by 40-plus authors who lived in radically different cultural contexts than ours and who used a wide variety of literary genres. I don't say this to make the claim that only scholars and experts can understand the Bible. But the Bible is beautiful in its complexity. 66 books written over 1,500 years in three languages by 40, over 40 authors who lived in different contexts from ours, who used a wide range of literary genres. What this does, or what this should do, is create a sense of humility, an open-handedness towards Scripture, raising us a kind of awe and reverence for how all this works together to communicate God's beautiful story of redemption. So, with that on reverence, let's now look at four key words that are often used to talk about the Bible. And I want us to, to do this keeping in mind that there's way more to say about each of these four words than we have time for here. And so once again, I want to draw your attention to our Practice the Practice resource. Go on our webpage, click on Practices, and then go to Reading. It's actually under 2021, which I know is a little bit confusing. But you click on the Reading Practice for 2021, and our resource has all kinds of great stuff in it. Things about Bible dictionaries, commentaries, research tools, uh, again, suggestions for different um, um, plans that you can follow for reading through Scripture, a list of books that help unpack different questions that we might have about the Bible. A lot of great stuff there for you to dig into. But now, I want to briefly hit on these four kind of big words that, that, were, that are often used when we talk about the Bible. First word is inspired. Okay, we say the Bible is inspired. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And we'll say more about this reliability in just a moment. And you will do well to pay attention to it. I love that phrase. You will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own imagination or interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> How cool is that? Here is the great mystery of Scripture. We have human authors using their own skills and language and education and context and experience and yet carried along by the Spirit so that their words are not simply their own hot take but the words, the very words of God. This is core to our faith, right? Embracing the mystery of the human and the divine working together. So the Bible, we say, is inspired. Second, even with this great mystery, the Bible is trustworthy. There's a lot of wonderful books. In fact, there's stacks and stacks of books that explain how we got these 66 books, how the text has been preserved. It's all really amazing stuff. But I very simply want to just point out a couple of things. Jesus says, 
These are his own words. He's speaking to his father. One of the last things that he says before he goes to the cross, he says, your word is truth. John 17, 17, your word is truth. And if God's word is truth, we can trust it. We can trust it. Now, again, there's all kinds of, of, of uh, books and research and explanation for places where there might seem like there are discrepancies and whatnot. But underneath all of that, God's word is trustworthy. Here's one of the reasons why I, uh, why I believe this to be true. Not only does the Bible claim to be trustworthy, but it also says, you know what? Test it. Test it out. This again brings us back to Acts 17, right? Try it out. See if it works. Examine the claims. Look at how they hold up. This can be a really helpful and beautiful process. We just did a short-term group last fall around questions we have about the Bible, and it was a lot of fun, but also a really good practice because our questions can grow trust. So the Bible is inspired, the Bible is trustworthy, and then the third word is the Bible is useful. This brings us back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And when it says useful, this is not just a, a pragmatic sense of the word. It's useful in its purpose, right? All scripture is God-breathed and useful, purposeful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Useful here refers to the power that scripture has to transform us into loving people who are equipped for every good work. And I just need to address something here for a moment. There's some people who uh, spend a lot of time reading Scripture and yet are not equipped for every good work, are not becoming more loving people. It's entirely possible to spend a lot of time reading Scripture and not be equipped. But one of the ways that we can, can tell, one of the ways that we can pay attention and notice that Scripture is, is, is working the way that it is intended to work is, are we being equipped for every good work, are we growing in love? Fourth word, the Bible is authoritative. And this is yet another word that we may have some baggage with. So I want to talk about this for just a moment. It wasn't until uh, the Council of Carthage, which we all know about in 397 AD, that we get full agreement on the 66 books that are now considered canon. So our Bibles that, that we have today with 66 books in them, that was decided on. At, at around 400 A.D. at the Council of Carthage. The short story is this. They agreed to take the 39 Jewish books, uh, Jewish canon Old Testament books, and then 27 uh, New Testament books and letters that came from authors, and this was the key thing, authors who'd either been with Jesus during his life and ministry or those who had, uh, the, the authors had bit, spent time with people who were with Jesus. So there's one degree of separation there, basically. And they were chosen, these books were chosen because they carried some weight, right? They had authority because of their proximity to Jesus. So we don't talk about authority here in the sense of grumpy people telling us what to do, using their position to kind of order us around. No, Scripture is authoritative in that it tells the Jesus story. And it carries weight because it tells us the story that is true. This story of God's good creation, our rebellion against that creation, and then God's work of restoration and future redemption through Jesus, his death and resurrection, but also his second coming. The authority, the weight that comes from telling the true 
story. Psalm 119, which we read at the very beginning of our gathering today, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. This is the story that illuminates everything, right? That makes sense of our human lives and experiences. That points us to our need for relationship with God, our maker. And which leads us to one of our core theological convictions, this truth that God is relationship. The Father, Son, and Spirit exist as three persons, one being another great mystery of our faith faith that's been named the Trinity by the church for the last 2,000 years. God exists as as community, persons in a relationship of mutuality, commitment, sacrifice, and love. And it is out of that love that God creates all things, but specifically human beings in His image in order to share, to extend that loving community of right relationships. Now in our sin and rebellion, we mess that up. We break relationship with God and subsequently with each other. But the good news is that God doesn't go, oh well, and walk away from us. No, He pursues us. He invites us back to that community. He makes a way for all of this to be possible, for those relationships to be healed, for right relationship to be possible again through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, and so, since God is relationship, viewing Scripture through this lens of narrative, this lens of story makes a lot of sense. Because how do we relate to each other? How do we relate to each other? It's through stories. It's through stories. Think about the relationships you know, marriages, friendships, how we get to know people who are different from us cross-culturally. Story is about meaning and revelation. Revelation is how we relate, as we make ourselves known. Scripture is one of God's primary revelations of Himself to us. God has revealed Himself in creation, He reveals himself through each other. He has primarily revealed himself through the person of Jesus, but he also reveals himself through written communication, this thing called the Bible. And so we read the Bible to get to know God, to relate to God, to understand his story and to find our stories getting caught up in his story. On a very personal level, this has been quite meaningful for me. My story is that I grew up in the church but walked away when I was 18 and leaving for college because I saw a lot of appearing and not a lot of being. And I was also drawn into what I thought at the time were more interesting stories, stories of making money and having fun and doing my own thing as I saw my friends with these bigger and bigger trucks and I wanted maybe not those trucks, but I wanted that kind of freedom, that kind of lifestyle, just do whatever I wanted. Now, here's a warning for us today. When you get into the story and when your story begins to get caught up in God's story and you're processing this in community, these inspired, trustworthy, useful, authoritative words will mess you up. (laughs) They'll mess you up in a good way. For me, it was when the stories of Jesus went from information and, you know, sort of moral teachings to a way of life and an adventure to join that everything changed. And Jesus at one point talks about gaining the world and losing your soul. What he's talking about there is competing stories. There's a story where you gain everything and lose your soul. There's another story where you find, keep, protect, maintain your soul. And you may or may not gain anything 
worthwhile in this world, but you keep the thing that is most important, most who you are. For me, I realized I was living a story that was going to be fun, that might even involve some, some cool experiences, but I did not want to live a story that was he went to college, he got a good job, he bought a new car. And I started to become much more compelled by uh, he followed Jesus into this incredible adventure of participating in the kingdom of right relationships. The poet Mary Oliver asks us, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious soul? Chase cars? Go on vacations? Or join Jesus in this great adventure of redeeming and restoring his good creation? And so we end where we ended last week with this question, what is your story? What do you plan to do with your one wild and precious soul? What kind of story is your life telling? Don't settle for appearances. Dig into this story. Dig into this story and see where the adventure takes you. Now, before we pray and take communion and, and worship again in song together, I want to end with this. As a prep for communion, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 63, These words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And I don't know where you might be this morning, but, but when it comes to the Bible and reading the Bible, perhaps you are, your reading is non-existent. Perhaps it's boring. Perhaps you are tired of it. Maybe this is not a major issue for you, but just in general, as we go through this chaotic moment, this ongoing pandemic, this most recent wave, perhaps you are feeling beat up a little bit. Tired, worn out, confused, angry, all these sorts of things. I want us to take this phrase that Jesus uses here in John 6, and I want us to turn it into a prayer. As we get ready for communion, as we get ready to, to eat these simple elements, the, the bread and the juice, the bread and the wine, whatever you have with you this morning, as we get ready to, to get this in us, let's turn this into a prayer. God, may your words be spirit and life. May, may this, this story become spirit and life again, or maybe for the first time, or in a fresh way. God, would, it, would your words be spirit and life for us? In the midst of our craziness, would it be spirit and life. Let me pray, and then you can take communion. God, we do pray this very thing. Wherever we might be this morning, however we're feeling, whatever it is that we are going through, may your words be spirit and life, breathing into us the truth of the story of your great redemptive work in our world. May this be our story individually and collectively as a church family here in Davis, California. God, may your words be spirit and life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.